Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code Radio20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Live from our nation's capital. This budget thing is going to do nothing. Space Force, I still think it's interesting. President Trump not playing his cards yet. Headlines, policy, and politics colliding. Sound on with Kevin Cirilli. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. I would rather see a congressional solution. It's part of my deal. The Senate map in 2020 looks a lot different than it looked in 2018. You really have a divide within Team Trump. The president has to do exactly what people sent him here to do, which is to get it done. This is Sound On with Kevin Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 89.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. We're talking Iran sanctions. President Trump sanctions Iran's supreme leader in a provocative, provocative move. We have every angle covered, the politics, the policy, and what it means in the short term. Meanwhile, we're also keeping our eye on this upcoming Democratic presidential debate. I leave for Miami tomorrow. The debate, two-part debate. It's on Wednesday night and Thursday night. And again, we are watching the policy implications and how businesses are preparing themselves for this Democratic presidential debate. The first of many. The first of many. And then the immigration debate debacle. Call it what you want. Uh, Tensions flaring over the past several days. The fallout from all of the leaks coming out of 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue on the president's immigration Proposals. All-star panel, Scott Mulhauser, founder of Aperture, Aperture Strategies, former chief of staff uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and former deputy chief of staff for Vice President Joe Biden in 2012. And we have Lauren Claffey, Republican strategist, managing director now at Hamilton Place Strategies, for deputy assistant secretary for public affairs at the Department of Homeland Security. That's been in the news recently. And communications director and spokeswoman uh, for U.S. Senator Saxby Chamberlain. Before we get to all of that, President Donald Trump imposing sanctions on Iran's supreme leader today, as well as eight senior military commanders. This is really one of the most provocative steps designed to increase pressure on Iran as well as the Islamic Republic. Now, all of this comes at a time in which the State Department has been impacting Iran by really going after all of its various economic sectors, notably energy, as well as others, to isolate them, to get them to lose their nuclear ambitions. Here to break down all of this is... Scott Mulhauser, founder of Chief of Staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing and former Deputy Chief of Staff to Vice President Joe Biden. He's advising much of the presidential field as well. We'll talk to him about that coming up. And Lauren Claffey, she is a Republican strategist, now Managing Director at Hamilton Place Strategies. Lauren, what what happened today with the president uh, really going after and imposing these Iran sanctions? 
So he announced the additional sanctions, which is part of this maximum uh, campaign, maximum pressure campaign, uh, to really squeeze uh, the Iranian regime in every way possible. But you have to understand that this was mostly a symbolic gesture, although the administration is arguing that it has um, more of an effect than maybe we realize. Um, but it's mostly viewed as a symbolic gesture because their economy in, is so tight already. It's been failing, and they are they're. The Iranian regime is failing to a degree, um, and the politics at home have become so desperate that I think that's why you see a lot of Iran lashing out at this point, because this maximum pressure campaign actually has been working. Um, however, they are not yet brought to the negotiating table. Europe continues to continues to talk to them. Um, a lot of our allies over there are still trying to do a trade deal with them in order to salvage the Iran nuclear deal and perhaps ratchet down some of their alien nuclear activity. Um, it's important to realize that you know the United States doesn't just want uh, for the civilian nuclear program to uh, decrease, but they really also want uh, to you know reduce the regional terrorist funding, which is an important portion of this, and they also have. Uh, Detaining, detainees, yes. Um, so, you know, there's a lot of focus on the nuclear program and, you know, right. what they do with that. But there's multiple concessions that the United States is seeking. You know, Scott, I was struck by this because the, the major two developments within the last two weeks, you've got the Iranians, according to the State Department, going after the six ships in international waters, Uh really impacting the energy sectors in various different countries. And then coupled with that, you have... The Iranians, again, according to the State Department, shooting down that uh, unmanned drone. The president saying in that interview with Chuck Todd, I thought that was a great interview, by the way, uh, over the weekend, that he was 10 minutes away, 10 minutes away from going after and using military force in response to that, still leaving military force on the table, but saying that it was unproportional, disproportional response, which is why he didn't go after it. So now he's still relying on sanctions, but it's not like there's much more left to sanction. I mean, I, that's exactly right. They've are, the U.S. has already hit key sectors, oil, banking, steel, onward. So to, to Lauren's point, some of this is signaling just to saying we're going to keep squeezing. And I think there's a sense that that was sort of what that, that threat was uh, that you know, the president ultimately pulled back on when he ultimately decided not to, to, to drop that bomb. I think his, he thought he could scare him. And I think the play is to try to scare him to the table. Now, it's interesting, right, because they were at the table and they struck a deal with President Obama. And so it's interesting to see that sort of this is obviously it's different and things have changed. But but they were at the negotiating table. So they've been squeezed. It's clear they may come back. But how much more are they going to give? So the question that I hear and and these are the battle lines of the political discourse, so to speak, are that supporters of the president's foreign policy argue that this is a temper tantrum of sorts, for lack of a better phrase, on behalf of Tehran to say, all right, these sanctions are hurting us, so now we're starting to have a temper tantrum. Critics of the administration's policies argue, well, see that? Your policies aren't working because look at them. They're throwing a temper tantrum and they're shooting down drones and going after ships. Here's what President Trump had to say earlier today at the White House. We will continue to increase pressure on Tehran until the regime abandons its dangerous activities and aspirations, including the pursuit of nuclear weapons, increased enrichment of uranium, development of ballistic missiles, engagement in and support for terrorism, fueling of foreign conflicts, and belligerent acts directed against the United States and its allies. 
That was President Trump speaking earlier today about the decision to impose additional sins on Iran's supreme leader. Right after that response, did you guys see this? It was like, you know, for us in the financial press, we're like, oh, my God. Secretary of Treasury Stephen Mnuchin walks out, walks out into the briefing room. I want to play for you a portion of what Secretary Mnuchin had to say. Here's the Treasury Secretary. These are highly, highly effective on locking up the Iranian economy. And as the president said, we look forward to a time in releasing sanctions if they're willing to negotiate. That was Treasury Secretary Steven Mnuchin elaborating more on those particular sanctions that the U.S. government has now uh, uh, imposed uh, regarding Iran. I do want to note that this is, you know, the, the chess piece of all of this. Uh, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo is traveling abroad. He's in Saudi uh, and he's then going through the region. What are you going to be looking for, Lauren, uh, on, from, from this coming from the State Department? So he's going to be out there trying to shore up support for this maximum pressure campaign in light of uh, Iranians' uh, reaction to the additional sanctions and um, also just the pressure generally. Uh, So what he's looking for is to make sure that if there is some sort of attack or any sort of um, other action by Iran, that they will, um, that Saudi Arabia will jump in, that they will be supportive, that we'll have allies in the region. He's not looking to Europe right now. He's for the Middle Eastern, our Middle Eastern partners in order to kind of prevent any sort of extended conflict there. It's particularly interesting with, with Jared's, Jared Kushner's introduction and, and ongoing push for, for Middle East peace. The challenge with this administration, I say this not as a, as a Democrat, but just as sort of an observer, is sort of without a sustained push, without a consistency here, it's going to be interesting to see how much will last. I think seeing how different uh, players in the region will respond is going to be fascinating. I think we'll, we'll all keep a close eye on it this week. I was struck by this uh how the president tweeted out uh, just before this announcement regarding sanctions. It's also, there's an international component to this. I mean, and especially with the Strait of Hormaz, that is where these ships were mined. That is where these six ships that the Iranians, according to the State Department, those ships that the Iranians went after, that's where they were traveling through. And that is so crucial to energy, the energy sector. And so the president tweeted out, where are our international counterparts? Why aren't they also paying to protect those international waters. So literally hours before these additional sanctions, he's also now calling a tactic that we saw with NATO, calling on China and uh, to increase how much they're paying for that as well. Coming up, we're going to talk much more about that. We're going to talk much more about Iran as well as immigration. Panel stays. Scott Mulhauser of Aperture Strategy, former chief of staff to the U.S. Embassy in Beijing, knows a thing or two about China, and former deputy chief of staff for Vice President Joe Biden. Lauren Claffey's here, Republican strategist. Now she's over at Hamilton Place Strategies. Uh, she's also worked uh, as a, a the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Public Affairs at Homeland Security and for Senator Chambliss. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com iHeartRadio and Spotify. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. I'm Kevin Cirilli, Chief Washington Correspondent for Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. I'm really excited. I just got the okay that it's official. Eric Schultz, senior advisor to President Barack Obama and founder and CEO of the Schultz Group, he's coming in. 
Get this. He's a consultant on Designated Survivor, season three, just out on Netflix. They totally changed up the show, which was already a good show. And they've made it much more like House of Cards with like a little bit of, uh, what was that show? The Sopranos. I love it. So uh, we're going to check in with him about the show, how he has taken these political scandals, controversies. There's been a few in the past year. And how they've ended up. Uh, in the plot line for Designated Survivor. Still with me for the hour, Scott Mulhauser. Friend, by the way, right? I mean, friend, would you describe yourself as a friend of Eric? I'm very pro-Schultz. I, uh, very pro-Schultz. I'm very pro-Schultz. Do you pull I'm, that? Uh, I have. I've pulled it. Got I'm, it. Got I, it. I feel confident in my position, and I feel confident in his. I'm curious, though, <laughs> his changes to Designated Survivor, separate question. I'm curious where you'll land and, uh, and his take on it. So I appreciate that. Uh, uh, Scott Mulhauser of App. Aperture. Aperture Strategies. Aperture Strategies. He's worked uh, at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing in the Obama White House, uh, and now he is, he's also previously worked for Vice President Joe Biden. Lauren Clappy's here, Republican strategist, managing director at Hamilton Place Strategies. She's worked at uh, the Department of Homeland Security as well as for Senator Chambliss. All right. Big debate. I'm packing my bags tonight, heading down after work, down to Miami, Miami Kev, <laughs> um, two nights. You've got Elizabeth Warren, Senator Elizabeth Warren, Wednesday night, claiming the stage, not against Biden, who's on night number two. What are we looking for? What's everybody talking about? I'm going to start with the Democrat, Scott. Yes, that's fair. I think there's an opening night one, and I'm curious what you guys think. I think there's a real opening night one. I think um, Warren has had a nice rise in recent weeks. I think she's been rolling out policy after policy, no matter where you stand. And I think Democrats will be loath to go after her directly. Um, even if they do contrast, I think they'll be loath to take her on directly. I think there's an opening for anyone from Amy Klobuchar to Julian Castro to say tonight's the night. Do they attack Trump or do they finally gloves off on each other? We started to see this with the Biden attacks. But, like, are they all still going to be like, we all get along? They don't get along. I think night two you'll see more of that as they – you'll see some of them attempt to climb by taking down some of the, the more popular members but I think and elected. But I think – those in the fringes of the states, particularly with nothing to lose, those who sort of barely got in, I think you you may see them with the gloves off, knowing that they need to get back in. But I do think first night you can do a little bit of issue contrast, you get a little bit of sort of telling your own story in the hopes that's enough because there's got to be room for one or two to, to get a debate bump out of this. Yeah, that's what, I mean, you know, obviously the Republican side, we've had these large primaries for you know, a couple cycles. Um, and what's always surprising is the the front, the front runner is always the one that kind of drops. There's always some surprise that comes out of the debates, right? Because, I mean, you see the polling, uh, I forget who just recently did it, but uh, 65% of Democratic primary voters are not paying attention right now. Uh, they have not been paying attention to the debate whatsoever. It's like, it's like all these Dems, oh, Joe Sestak got in, by the way, I'm from Pennsylvania. Um, all these Dems are having this like party and America's like, yeah, I don't want to show up yet. Oh yeah, yeah, they're waiting. They're, they're waiting, waiting and they need to know. They don't they don't even know what the issues difference is between the people. But I think it's a miscalculation. And Scott, you have much more experience than me. You know better. So tell me why I'm wrong. I think it's a miscalculation not to take a national platform and just come out swinging. That's how Trump got Trump won the debates because he understood that the free media, as long as you're in that top tier consistently and you're framing the parameters of the debate, everyone else doesn't get airtime. But the question is, what do those others do, right? I think that's the real question. I think to Lauren's point about a crowded field, it's a crowded field. You've got 10 a night. You've got two hours. You're talking at most seven, eight, nine, ten minutes for some of these guys at most. Who's the most nervous? 
Oh, I think there are people that could not be on the stage moving forward. So I think there are going to be people, some, some new entrants like Bill de Blasio, who are at 1%, there are going to be folks that, on the periphery, you know, who just aren't that one. And it is early, right? And these guys are the self-help uh, woman? Marianne Williamson. Yeah, Marianne Williamson. I mean, I'm kind of just curious about her. The comfortable Andrew Yang. Andrew Yang. I think there's a He's going to have a breakout night, I predict it. I, I mean, the Yang. <laughs> no, I'm not kidding. I really think he will. Somewhat, the Yang gang is coming. I mean, look, there's something, right? There's something to, it is early. These guys are introducing themselves, and someone's going to connect in a way. All right. They're going to get a bounce. I just Take, think that voters uh, are so indecisive. They're going to be, like, picking and choosing. They'll but have you've got to be the choice. That's, mm-hmm. what I'm, that's, that's my point, is that when you have a crowd of, of 20 plus people and and to Lauren's point and I uh, when people are deciding they're deciding who they're going to be deciding between and you want to be in the in between my question to Scott who is very modest and has advised countless countless presidential candidates on the debate stage I want you to take off your political ideological cap and literally walk us through because we don't know this you have the luxury of knowing this and taking it for granted what is it actually actually like at a debate stage this early on what is going on on these scrappy upstart campaigns and lauren and i've spent some time with with senators doing it too and I, i'll tell you what you're doing is you're looking for any minute of spare time to, to bone up right to study to prep to get ready not just on your policies but on your hits how you're going to respond when you know there's an attack they're coming for you kevin or you or are you Lauren? No one comes for Kev. No one. No <laughs> one you, you come for the king. You best not <laughs> to quote the wire, right? I mean, but I think, and, I, and, and Lauren, feel free to jump in here. But I, in short, what you're doing is you're getting ready and you're using your time. Sometimes that's a full two-hour mock session with nine other people in podiums. Sometimes that's you in a briefing book or you in a you in a aide in a room. But you got to be ready not only this. for what you want to say, but for yeah, others. Everyone's want to say. different, right? Like I've I've prep some principles where they do they want the smaller debate it's not the full-scale things that you see in the tv shows all the time where there's mock senators and you know like all the debates and things um it really depends on the member and a lot of it too is optics because these are televised it's it really is theater and so a lot of it is just practicing delivery and making sure that it doesn't necessarily matter what you say it's how people feel about it and so it's really just making sure that people feel like they know you that they're comfortable with you that they could get behind you i call it value messaging value telegraphing and you want to be, you want your prep to be harder than your session. If your prep is harder than your session, then the actual debate itself, you've done something right. All right. You know, it's like, this is fascinating. Because this is literally, I would almost think that like in this crowded of a field, and coming up we'll talk more about this, that it would be harder to go try to stand out in a crowd of 20 than to, than to do a one-on-one debate. And plus, I don't think many, no offense, advisors have that much experience on advising debates of 20-plus people. We have to, coming up, we'll talk more, as I promise, well, Scott. Except for the Republicans, right? Except for the Republicans. <laughs> Download the Sound On podcast on iTunes, Bloomberg.com, or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. Check us out on the Terminal Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. You're listening to Sound On with Kevin Cirilli. 
on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Song off my all-time favorite album, All That You Can't Leave Behind by U2, but I gotta be candid here. It's not that much beautiful day anymore, folks. The rain's coming down. Wake up if you're in your car. It's Monday. We've got a huge week, huge week. The G20, Osaka, Japan, President Trump and President Xi Jinping. We've got the first Democratic presidential debate happening in Miami. We're going to be broadcasting there on Wednesday and Thursday. So big, big issues on trade internationally, obviously, uh, and the debate front. And we're going to be covering it from every angle. Coming up later on in the show, Eric Schultz. Eric Schultz, senior advisor to President Barack Obama and the founder and CEO of the Schultz Group. He's now advising designated survivor. He's going to stop by, give us an update on that. I want to talk immigration with our all-star panel, Scott Mulhauser, founder of Aperture Strategies. He also uh, previously has advised, the, he was deputy, former deputy chief of staff for former Vice President Joe Biden, uh, and he has worked at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. Uh, Lauren Claffey's here, Republican strategist. She's worked at the Department of Homeland Security, uh, done comms work there, as well as for Senator Saxby Chambliss, and is managing director now at Hamilton Place Strategies with Tony and Kev, Kevin Madden, the other Kev. Um, so, all right, this whole entire debate over the weekend, my head was spinning. I was talking with folks at your previous employer, employer Lauren, at DHS, I'm trying to wrap my head around what the policy is going to be regarding immigration. Catch us up to speed over where we are now and whether or not there will be these deportations. So just to back up, right, because it seems like it came out of nowhere, but um, a couple of months ago, uh, Congress started negotiating on appropriations bills. So this is kind of where this all starts. And they always starts with the probes. Always starts with the probes, (laughs) just to get D.C. nerdy real quick. (laughs) That's my favorite thing to do. (laughs) And uh, so they were negotiating furiously. They said that they were getting something on the president's desk for signature by July 4th recess. Lo and behold, Congress is missing a deadline. That's pretty normal. Um, And plus, they weren't anywhere near. The House and the Senate had different bills. They were going to have to go to conference anyways to kind of shake out those differences. Um, But there was going to be border wall funding. There was going to be funding for ICE. There was going to be funding for CBP. Um, There was going to be funding for sort of this broader humanitarian crisis that's going on at the border right now. Um, But, you know, they couldn't really reconcile. They're still in the middle of negotiations. And so then uh, Trump comes in. Friday, the Post reports that Trump's going to deport all of these families and that the raids are going to start on Sunday. Then, like, literally less than 24 hours later over the weekend, he's like, no, I'm not going to do that because the Democrats requested no. I don't even know. Yeah, he thought that uh, Nancy Pelosi was blinking and that he was going to get what he wanted as far as border wall funding and other things. And so he was willing to pull uh, the, you know, remove his uh, threat for deportations. Uh, That doesn't seem to be true, though. You actually now have conservatives kind of blasting him for uh, for a failed negotiation uh, in regards to this. Um, But they also think that the deportations would be non-controversial, which they already were. Yeah, I mean, I think there's got to be a solution here that is comprehensive enough to both ensure that we have secure borders but take care of these kids, these heartbreaking images of these kids and these families. And I think um, no one latest, uh, as evidenced by Trump recently, stares down Nancy Pelosi and and loses. I think that a couple times the president's tried it. Um, He has struggled from the shutdown on through the State of the Union address onward. And I think 
watching this happen and counting on her to buckle isn't the right play. But more stepping aside from partisan politics, we ought to be able to come up with a solution here that, um, and I know it's so toxic, I know it's one of the third rails of modern American politics. We ought to come up with something that can ensure our borders are secure, but also take care of these families that need to get uh, immigration, which is a lot of the, the bedrock of this country. Too. Is yeah. the messaging, Lauren, from your time at DHS, is the messaging part of the strategy? Is the messaging part of the policy to create confusion so you're forecasting to families who are considering or smugglers who are considering illegally coming into the country not to do so because they could be deported? Yeah, I don't think the confusion part is, although, you know, it's interesting when uh, President Trump first came into office, there was a sharp decline in apprehension order because, and they attributed it to uh, the fact that his rhetoric was so um, intense on immigration that people stopped trying to <laughs> stop trying to come across the border illegally. Um, but then we saw a massive spike because there was all of a sudden an increase in um, coverage on the our asylum laws and the ways that you can exploit them and then also the children's policy and so there's been a really big spike in uh, apprehensions right now so the administration will say that uh, that their deterrence messaging is what they call it is actually uh, is actually something that they are seeking to do and it's actually advertising campaigns go on in Central America to encourage people not to come to the United States so they, they kind of lump it under deterrence. And I think you'll hear more about this Wednesday and Thursday night during the debate. I think you'll hear um, stories about um, what each of these 20 candidates would do um, in dealing with this. But I think it's, it's, it's a problem. And the president today, or the president's administration today, said they're running out of money to shelter these kids. I, there's not. Um, We've got to figure this out. And it's, it, it's time. You know, uh, all right. Did you guys see uh, that? You know, you've got this immigration issue, this immigration Situation. It, candidly, I don't really see much divide in terms of how Democrats are and whether or not that will come up uh, on the first debate uh, stage down in Miami. But coming up, we're going to have much more politics policy. You can download the Sound On podcast on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find us on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. Scott Mulhauser stays. Lauren Claffey stays. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. This is Sound On with Kevin Cirilli on Bloomberg 99.1 and 105.7 FM HD2 Baltimore. Monday, folks. Busy week. Buckle up. Put on your seatbelt. You're driving home from work. Be safe. We've got the debate happening in Miami, the first Democratic presidential debate. I head to Miami tomorrow night. I'll be there. Full coverage on Bloomberg Television and Bloomberg Radio. Meanwhile, if the politics wasn't enough, then you've got the G20 President Trump will be meeting at that one-off meeting with President Xi Jinping. The trade talks continue. And it takes place in Osaka, Japan. We've been breaking down all of the policy that could come up at that debate, including Iran. All-star panel. Lauren Claffey's here. She is a Republican strategist, now managing director at Hamilton Place Strategies. She's worked from the Department of Homeland Security as well as up in the Senate. Uh, also, Scott Mulhauser found Aperture Strategies. He's also worked for as the deputy chief of staff to former Vice President Joe Biden, as well as the former chief of, uh, the former chief of staff at the U.S. Embassy in Beijing. And he just walked in. He's an advisor on the Netflix version of Designated Survivor. Have you seen it? It's awesome. Eric Schultz. He is also a former senior advisor to President Barack Obama. All right. 
Eric, I want to get to this in a second, but I want to finish up. We were talking earlier with Scott and Lauren about the debate. What is the craziest thing, Scott, that you've ever seen happen behind the scenes at a presidential debate? Well, the best thing that has come out, which was not my moment, but Charlie Christian, the fan, was pretty good when he insisted that you have a fan blowing in the, um, amidst and beneath the A podium. Beyonce fan? A be- I mean, that's... Eric and Lauren and I insist on that as well for this sort of a little upset in the studio. <laughs> and I'm the diva. Fun. Okay, go ahead. <laughs> um, also, we're kidding for you. Um, but there are so many. I mean, watching people, the, the maximum in debate politics and, 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 and debate lore is if you have a crummy final session, you'll have a great debate. What's and, the craziest thing you've seen, Lauren? So this one's actually on YouTube, so I encourage everybody to look at it. But you know when they messed up the last uh, Republican debates uh, in the last cycle? They messed up the uh, order, and so you literally oh, just ben Carson. Ben Carson standing there, you know, just waiting. I mean, that's inevitable, right? There's always going to be something that dong, and you're going to have some candidate that is sort of awkwardly embarrassed. All right, Eric, you've worked for Obama. You know a thing or two about scandals, John Edwards. So what uh, – <laughs> What about in terms of how these political sagas end up or inspire some of the storylines on shows like Designated Survivor? Sure. I got interested in the show because the showrunner who had produced ER and Law & Order SVU wanted wanted, um, to inject that same sense of authenticity into uh, the Netflix reboot of the show. And by moving off of network programming and onto Netflix, they got freedom to be, to be edgier and racier, and uh, we took full advantage. So what is something that you can tell us that, that, that maybe is rooted in real life? Uh, mice in the White House. Re- There's mice in the White House. Yes. There's yes. squirrels out on Pebble Beach where people do their live shots. Yes, exactly. It's um, Well, we talked a lot about this when I was with the writers, which is the sort of Hollywoodization of White House isn't as glamorous as it as you'd think it would be. All right, look, I'd listen to Eric talk about the show all day. I'm excited to see the reboot, Eric Schultz. Tune in. Yeah, the White House is disgusting in real life. I mean, real. I mean, truly. I think that is a good uh, addition to Hollywood. Do for- you think, like, I grew up, I was watching The West Wing over the weekend just because I have no life, and um, I was watching an episode of it. But, I mean, how does, how does the, the culture and the per- current political climate actually reflect in how – and how consumers of media are are watching. Is it a reflection of the times? Designated Survivor is kind of dark. Not dark, but I mean, it's edgier. It's not like West Wing, which is a little more optimistic. It's interesting. We, um, President Kirkman, played by uh, Kiefer Sutherland. The legendary Kiefer Sutherland. I got to see like a matchup of 24 with Designated Survivor. Well, maybe not. Yeah, so he (laughs) obviously became President of the United States. He was the housing secretary uh, uh, after a terrorist attack at the State of the Union. And this is his first time running for office, is the arc of season three. And the the premise is, how can a good person, a true principled public servant, survive in the rough and tumble of a presidential campaign? Sounds like fantasy, Lauren. Absolute fantasy. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> I mean, we got choose hope. We choose hope. That's right. We have two dozen. When when they go low, we go high. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> well, right. we'll see if that holds true That's in the right. debates. That's right. <laughs> Um, so we were also talking about uh, trade policy and international components and whatnot. And uh, I just want to catch everybody up to speed in terms of the developments with the G20. And, and be, we'll come back to the, the in a second. Uh, but in terms of what's coming up at the G20 with President Trump and President Xi, what are you going to be looking for, Scott? I mean, this is – expectations are pretty low right now. Even Trump's own cabinet is signaling that not much is coming out of this. But, you know, the president's going to be closely watching both the looming election – 
and the middling economy and going to have to make a decision about what he's going to do. And at some point, staring down the Chinese and seeing farmers, manufacturers, workers all suffer may not be the best political They've country. sort of backed off, Lauren, in terms of the rhetorical approach that the administration has taken. You have uh, former or current vice president uh, Mike Pence. Mike Pence canceling that speech that he was supposed to deliver, a blistering critique against the Chinese coming from last week. Uh, sort of a signaling that they're, they're easing sort of the rhetorical tension that has emerged. Uh, the, the Commerce Secretary equivalent in China releasing a statement over the weekend also sort of de-escalating some of the tensions. But I'm not sure that anyone's saying that they're going to get some type of deal at the G20. No, I don't think that anybody expects a deal by any means. But just the fact that they're meeting and having a conversation, I think, is a good sign. Um, you know, it, it's gotten to the point where you have the two, the world's two largest economies uh, fighting like this. And China is currently raising or lowering tariffs for every other country while raising for American goods. So, I mean, they've really put the pressure um, on uh, the United States to back down a little bit. And so I think that you'll see at least some negotiations take place. But I would agree with Scott's assessment that uh, you've seen everyone kind of really lower expectations for this just to make sure that there's so, at least some diplomacy that takes place. And I think a lot of us who want to be tougher on China and, and think there's a way to do it may not think tariffs are the right approach, right? I think there's a way, whether it's, you know, human rights, whether it's you know, academic freedoms, there are an array of things, I think, that can have you be tough on China, both business-wise and in a, in, a, in a host of other fields that don't center on tariffs as they boomerang, boomerang back on America. And I just can't stop thinking about the juxtaposition of how the populist president will be overseas at the G20. Meanwhile, as the populist Democratic presidential candidates start their attempts uh, in Miami, Florida uh, this weekend in order to try to differentiate themselves on the pack. But really, that puts Biden, I would argue, at somewhat of a disadvantage, because if he's perceived as not being that able to break away from our left of his party on issues like tariffs or issues like trade negotiations, could be a rough spot for him, no? I mean, I, I think you could make a case, conversely, that Playing in international spaces is a place where he has he has legitimacy and he has gravitas and he has credibility. So, Lauren? So I think the thing with China that's going to be so interesting, especially when it comes to the democratic debate, is how much of a national security conversation. We actually, we've actually we been talking about it from a tariffs and economic perspective. But, uh, you know, there's a whole conversation going on that we're trying to prevent uh, 5G technology from being assembled in Huawei. China at all. And the, and the Commerce Department has a huge entity list. Um, and, you know, we're blocking uh, transactions of Chinese uh, companies coming into the United States, mergers and acquisitions and such. So I think that there's actually a lot of different ways that they can go to the path of differentiating themselves um, with a more, um, a still a tough China, um, but maybe not uh, in the same vein as the Trump administration. All right, Lauren Claffey, thanks for stopping by. Scott Mulhauser. Coming up, we got much more with Eric Schultz. you got to go to iTunes because we're going to interview him specifically on this designated survivor reboot on Netflix. I'm telling you, it's awesome. It's, 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 it's like better than when it was on the network, but still tra- stays true to its authenticity. So you can find that on Apple iTunes at Bloomberg.com or by downloading the Bloomberg Business app. You can also find me on Radio.com, iHeartRadio, and Spotify. I'm Kevin Cirilli. You're listening to Bloomberg 99.1. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.